What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie the Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter the Third. Third, third, third. With our guests. That's my big... Um... <sighs> you always say something after. <laughs> anyway, with our guest today, Ryan Carniato. How's it going, Ryan? It's going pretty good. Just having a nice uh, Tuesday afternoon. It's actually a crazy windstorm here in San Jose where I live. Mm. It's very uncommon for us to have rain or anything, but it's like, I've never seen anything like this in the last, like, I've only been here like three years, but still. Hmm. It's unprecedented times in California weather this year, for sure. I don't know what's going on in the world, so. Yeah, I'll take some of that snow. I heard it's getting warmer and colder some places. (laughs) Cool. So for folks that have not heard of you or... Solid JS or the things you are involved with. Do you want to give a quick intro into who you are and what you do? Yeah, um, I work on open source is the best way to put it. I created the framework or JavaScript library slash framework, SolidJS. It's something that I've been working on for quite some time. Started sometime around in 2016 and then open sourced in 2018 and released 1.0 in 2021. But beyond that, um, funny doing that, teaching about it, uh, writing articles led me to actually working at eBay for a while, working on their open source framework, which introduced me to a lot of other people working on open source frameworks. So, you know, next thing I know, I'm writing articles about other open source frameworks as well and just digging into the whole space. So now I work at Netlify and uh, basically that's like my mandate. I just get to work on open source JavaScript frameworks. Uh, doesn't matter if it's solid or other ones, but I do spend most of my time working on solid. Nice, nice. Cool. I find that to be a very interesting position to be in. And so we will put a pen in that one because I definitely want to come back to it as like open source as your job and Netlify happens to pay you. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> cool. So Chuck, you want to tell us about the whiskey? Sure. So this is Barrel Whiskey out of Louisville, Kentucky. This is their Infinity Barrel Project. It's quite a warm one at 127.22 proof. And so 63.61% alcohol. Fairly significant. (laughs) It has whiskeys from Poland, Ireland, Scotland, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of an Infinity bottle. Like whiskey nerds have this thing. Some people even do a barrel, but uh, you have this bottle here that like, say you're getting to the end of one of your bottles. You just pour the rest of that in your infinity and constantly just mixing up your leftovers and trying it. And people have various rules like, oh, only put bourbon in there. Some people will put anything called whiskey in there and you end up with like very interesting stuff over time. So you always have a little bit of what's been there before and you're adding something new. And that's essentially what they do with these releases. So they'll bottle up a bunch of it and leave some in the barrels and then put new stuff in there. And then it's just like the next release has a little bit of that and then some new things that we put in. I think it's pretty clever to actually commercialize that whole practice. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so we'll see what we think of it. We have tended to like this company's stuff, though. So I've so far not had a thing that I didn't think was like tasty and interesting. Some better than others, of course, but there's always a first time. Yeah, this one sucks. Sorry, Ryan, we tested it out on you. This one sucks. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm not much necessarily of a whiskey drinker straight, or at least not in recent years. It's a little bit different back when... I was playing in punk bands, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not sipping on whiskey. Right. Yeah. Right. The quality might be a little different too. So yeah. Hmm. Getting a little orange rind and I smell some kiwi somehow. Kiwi. I don't know if that's just me. Did you eat some kiwi? You had a ginger ale before. I had a ginger ale. Maybe that's mixing with the smell. Yeah. I get a little, I don't know. We make up words and pretend like we know what we're doing here. So hmm. yeah, I get a like Quantro. Kind of like if you had a cocktail that had like pretty hot whiskey in it and hot, I just mean like high proof. So it has some burn. Right. And a little like a little bit of Cointreau in there or something. You're still getting like that orange rind, orange essence to it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the one you said lime and you said citrus of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So I get that. Yeah. A little leathery kind of in the finish. It's a little bit viscous. What does that mean? <laughs> like thick? Yeah. 
doesn't it? I know viscosity like an oil. Am I using that wrong? I don't know. I've heard people use that in relation to wines before and then viscosity with like oils because I used to work on cars, but yeah, it's thick. Mm. Viscous. Okay. It does coat the tongue. So like this whole podcast started so you guys could like get like the deep whiskey voice and hear yourselves on recording it back. No, I mean, close. <laughs> it's so we could get these microphones that give us mm-hmm. that cool voice. Yep, yep. And then it's also free whiskey arbitrage, right? Yep. Because it's a business, business expense. expense. Yes. So, yeah. But you've got it. Yeah. It's all bullshit <laughs> just for, you know, those things. Yeah. I mean, this that was the best thing. Because saying punk rock, saying hardcore, mm-hmm. at a certain point, like this was the only, like, you know, you're supposed to like take care of your voice when you're a singer. But like, yeah. yeah, at a certain point, you know, a couple of days into the studio, you're just giving it full volume five, six hours straight. I mean, this is the best throat cure there is. Right. So <laughs> exactly. Plus, you're like trying to live the rock star life. Right. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. You can't <laughs> chug a bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean, I watched uh, was it some of those Motley Crue documentaries. I know what was up. <laughs> So in terms of this, we do kind of an arbitrary scale. So it's one to eight tentacles because we are very clever. As you might see behind me, there's an octo beast there. And uh, so one being like worst thing you've ever had, eight being like amazing, never want to drink anything else again, all variations in between. Robbie and I, since we've been doing this a whole bunch of times, we tend to like start to segregate things. Like, so I would put this in like an American whiskey category versus bourbon or rye or obviously like scotch and that kind of stuff so to show you how how it goes i guess i'll go first i think for as high a proof it is it actually is smoother than i expected i expected to like have a heartburn to be honest so i appreciate that and i like the citrus forward it lacks some diversity after that so i'm probably thinking in the barrel things i've had some really tasty stuff from them so it might be more of a five for me like it's better than average So I would say I recommend it, but I'd probably choose other things. Yeah. Am I next? Sure. (laughs) I don't know what order we're going in. Unless Ryan's ready for it. I don't care. Yeah. Go for it. All right. I'm thinking kind of the same as you. So I would on its own give this a six, I think. But compared with other barrels being so amazing, I would say this is a little bit lacking. Maybe it's different every time because of the infinite barrel kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I'd say five. Yeah, I don't drink much whiskey straight, at least. Or when I did, it was really, really cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is much better from my perspective. So, I don't have it. I probably don't have the nuanced taste as well. So, for me, like, I'm I'm pretty happy with this. It's not the best whiskey I've ever had, but I'm going to give it a six. Nice. Cool. That's pretty solid. What would you say is the best whiskey you've ever had? That's a good question. <laughs> <sighs> You can sit on it if you want to think about yeah, it for a little I, bit. I, I did put you on the, the spot and you're not sure. And you don't drink a lot of whiskey, so you're trying to like... Yeah, so it's like, it's been years, so I don't even know if I'd get the, the name right. I'm not sure. It's not Canadian, is it? It might have been Canadian. I, yeah. <laughs> I mentioned to you guys that a, like rye whiskey in Canada is not the same as American rye whiskey. Right. So, Which is totally fine because I like some Canadian ryes and there's nothing wrong. I think Canadian whiskey can be very good. Obviously, Crown Royal it does some weird stuff with it, as do many other producers, right? I don't want right. apple flavoring in, in my whiskey. Just like, no, thank you. But no dig against those. Generally speaking, yeah, I like when it's smooth. I was actually, when you were talking about how like how much alcohol was in it, I was like, oh, is it going to be like that? Because when I first came to the U.S. a few years ago, I, we were like, oh, let's, you know, I got a few different types of whiskey, actually. And I was like, just go along with my other alcohol when we first like came in and kind of like stocked up. Can't bring that stuff across the border, at least not mm-hmm. shipping it the way it was during COVID. And anyways, I was like, oh, we should just like do some tasting. I, I don't know anything about tasting. We should just do some tasting. And like. It was not the best. I obviously did not get the the, the good stuff at all. So <laughs> you were like, I haven't seen this. Let's get it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, as I said, yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, if you think of the one that you liked the best, then would be totally curious, but not a big deal. I don't need to force you to think about it for the next five minutes while we lull and stare at your face. We can talk <laughs> about other things. This is good. This is good. Like the fact that I can just keep on drinking it is good. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, pro tip, actually, so you can change it in a couple of different ways, too, especially one that has high alcohol like this. So that just means that's how they took it out of the barrel, went straight to they didn't proof it down any or anything like that. So you can change whiskeys oftentimes by just adding like a few drops of water and that oxidizes it a little bit, opens it up, like basically provides some air in there. And uh, that will give it a slightly different flavor. And then you can even go much further and like put like a large cube or something in there. Yeah. And then that will cool it down. As it turns out, I have a cup of ice cubes to the side. I wasn't sure if it was like customary or good. I'm going to try this. Yeah, do it. So I invite you to do it because I think it'll change it some for you too. So I very much go by the creed of like the best whiskey is the one you like and that it also includes the way you like to drink it, except for Robbie, because he puts crushed ice in there and it melts really fast. And like I don't get it, but like everything else is on the table. You have to drink it really fast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That'll make for a good, good podcast. So, yeah. So on to like maybe more professionally like things. We have some hot takes because I just watch people get ridiculous on Twitter sometimes. And uh, so there's, you're a part of it sometimes. So that's why I was like, can't wait to talk to him. Yeah. So yeah, Robbie, you want to dive into hot takes? Sure. As you take a drink. Yeah. Let's go with a classic here. Get rebase or get merge. That's oh, funny. I've always been a get merge person, but I've like been doing more rebasing as of recently. But yeah, no, I'm more on the get merge side. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like that's rare to find uh, someone on the other side, but Everyone likes it different, so that's fine. Yeah. How do you feel about Tailwind? You use Tailwind or vanilla CSS? I have not used Tailwind. I don't have a problem with it. I think people, like, for me, it's not a drama point. I get the appeal of it. I'm not a CSS purist, mm. but I kind of like CSS and JS because, like, then I can actually, like, do CSS. I'm, I'm not very good at CSS. So, <laughs> you go. on the other hand, I would never recommend CSS and JS because of performance. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fair. So there's two sides of that coin. Yeah, I'm kind of like in the camp of I don't care enough about it to have a fight. So whatever you want. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is TypeScript one's kind of old, I guess, but inferred types or explicit types in TypeScript. It's funny. As a library author, actually explicit. Inferred is better when you're doing like application type stuff, like when you're actually like building the app and then you, but TypeScript is not perfect. It's not even close to perfect. So like when I'm building stuff at the lowest level that everyone else builds upon, I want to have the most control over that. So I will lie to the type system if it will give everyone better experience. Nice. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's very fair. And I appreciate like that responsibility at the root level there. Yeah. Yeah. TypeScript's the tool at the end of the day. Like we can't, it's really difficult because like there's like a desire and I get it to like, be like, this is the truth. But TypeScript can't be in the truth, like the complete truth in the world of JavaScript. There's just too many exception cases. TypeScript is, it's funny because when you think of types, you think of something like concrete, mm. like something that you like can build on and that are dependable. But in JavaScript, it's more like an art. It's kind of like painting. It's kind of like, oh, I will kind of like, you know, like you can have discussions with people about like how you could is this the right way or this way? Like you almost got like a second dimension of like characterization there. Like, honestly, like I can picture someone talking about TypeScript. It's kind of like an art critic talking about a work of art. And the original artist could be like, no, this wasn't what I was trying to get across. Mm. Like it's that interpretive from my perspective. I know not everyone feels that way, but it's like we invented a programming language on a programming language. And I mean, that's why we get so many hot takes and uh, discussions around this because it is very arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. Highly subjective, I think. And like, that's probably like one of the biggest problems in the JavaScript technical interview, in my view, is that there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. And if you get into someone who's like, has very like terse opinions about how things should get done through this test, then unless you encounter someone who has the same feelings, they're going to fail just because your subject, like the subjectivity of that, right? Like, did it work or didn't? It did work. So I passed, but you don't like the solution. That sounds like your problem, right? It's interesting because I have experience in other type languages. I've been developing software in some shape or form for, God, like 25 years, maybe even longer, actually. Truthfully, I've been on the web for like 25 years, but yeah, even longer than that. And I've used plenty of type languages. TypeScript is not like those. If you come in with like a type 
language expectation is different too. I, I remember that whole return types discussion recently on Twitter between like Prime and Theo yeah. was based on the fact that mm-hmm. Primogen was basing his like thinking on sound type systems, like actual like type languages. And he's like, this is what you would do. And he's 100% right. But then TypeScript is not that. So, right. you know, in a sense, Theo is actually correct, but it's because of the reality of TypeScript, not because of like the ideal of what type languages should be. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a very diplomatic way to look at it there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't really considered that. That's funny. That's a good take there. Also, now I'm really like curious, 25, so 25 years on the web. So did you start at 10 or are you just much older than I thought? Yeah, I'm much older than anyone realizes. I mean, I, I put on here, I had my 40th birthday this year, just last month. So. Oh, um, okay. So I'll be 46 this year, but I was also like late to the game. Yeah. You know, I had to screw around in my early twenties for a while. So. Yeah, no, I was, I programmed since I was 11 years old um, in some shape or form. Thanks to my dad, who went to back to college. He's like an iron worker by trade. You'd like never think this guy would, would be necessarily like in the computers. And he didn't stay long. He left, like he, he was computers for like two or three years. And then he went to like real estate and like other stuff. Huh. But it was enough of a push for me because he, I, I actually haven't told the story too much, but he came home one day and he was very proud of something he made in Quick Basic. And it was like this little arrow you know, Quick Basic has like that blue screen or something like mm-hmm. it was this arrow that like went up the screen and I, you could see the frame buffer flicker, like literally like it was the arrow going up the screen and I could see the whole screen flickering as it went up the screen. And he's like, look, Ryan, it's a spaceship. And I was like, it's an arrow. But like I was like 10 years old, but like I remember looking at that and I, I realized instantly that he hadn't just like recorded a video or put it in paint. You understand, like, obviously, this is kind of obvious to anyone who's a programmer, but like when you're like there's a difference between realizing like this is something that's just like manufactured versus like right. he told the computer to do this. And once I realized that I could tell the computer to do this, I was hooked. Within like a couple months, I was making better spaceship demos than him. I was trying to make like <laughs> asteroid clones. But I, my uncle was an engineer and I like borrowed his textbooks from university. And like I, I was like, I'm going to learn how to make video games. That's really what got me into it. But as I said, it was funny because it was like only a couple years of his life. He ended up going on to other things it was never really his his thing like he's a bit older now and he calls me up and it's like why can't my like open this pdf file you know like (laughs) (laughs) right right absolutely i love how like having any job on the internet automatically makes you tech support for everyone in your family (laughs) well and that's really how it started for me right right from like when i was a kid right even before i got into computers it was like the guy who fixed the local like Sega Genesis or Nintendo machines are like, because it's so funny because that era, like it was still very much like, no, go play outside. Right. Like that was the, the thing, like there wasn't internet, there wasn't, you know, these video game machines are going to rot your mind, so to speak. So sometimes parents would get like smart and be like, haha, I've disabled the device. And I'd be like, how hard is it to plug it into an auxiliary input and like figure out how to change the input on the TV and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, surprisingly that thwarted a lot of my friends, you know, when we, so that's kind of like how I got it started. Next thing I know, I was fixing people's computers, doing antiviruses and, you know, geek squad type stuff. So like, yeah, I've been doing tech stuff. Well, it was kind of a split. It was tech stuff and music. I couldn't choose right for all my teens, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It seems kind of like a common path though, too, because mm-hmm. of the practice element and, and that kind of thing. Definitely a lot of people, I mean, I, I don't know how to play any instruments, but Robbie can speak to that. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak a lot to it these days. I haven't played, I played guitar and bass and did like piano lessons for years and, you know, all right. bunch of different instruments, but, uh, yeah, I haven't really played in a long time now. It started with the piano lessons for you, right? Yeah. Like there, there was some instrument when you were a kid. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I had this silly music box when I was really, really young. But for me, like I, I played saxophone in school band. And that was like the one where I really like took it on my own. I remember I was like, figured out like some silly thing. Like, what was it? It was a theme to Jurassic Park. Hmm. Nice. Again, I'm aging myself in terms of, of that. But like I figured out how to play Jurassic Park by ear when I joined the band. And like from that point, it was just like, I can do anything with this. I think at a young age, when you find those things where you feel like you are empowered to just do whatever you feel like, it's super powerful. So almost everything has been defined by that. I just couldn't choose. It's funny, when you get about 18 or 19, you have to actually make decisions. Right. And that actually made things like challenging for me because I both went to university and tried to like play in a rock band and go on tour. One had to give, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. But that's maybe another story. Yeah. Yeah. And we might get there. I feel like we might get there, but 
I'll again kind of defer that to stay along the lines of at least our generalized subject matter. And the fact that we fast forward to today and you have Robbie's dream job, which is to do <laughs> open source software at your own direction yeah, and have a paycheck. Yeah, it's amazing. It's funny because as I said, it started for me working, solving actual problem, like working, I was working in a startup and I was, it was a knockout JS, oh. much love for knockout JS. But the thing was the startup, we kind of built our own tool chain. As it turned out, I ended up getting employed by the guy who created a library called Knockback. And Knockback was a backbone knockout hybrid. Hmm. Basically, people don't realize this. Knockout was the first just a view library sort of. It was actually just a state management library, but like essentially it didn't really care about your models or your backend. And it was a very light library. So he was like, oh, we need to make a framework out of this, something more like Angular or Ember. So he took backbone models and glued them. But it meant like five years later or whatever, you know, when he's no longer working at the company that I was like stuck with this code base that was like knockout models <laughs> or sorry, backbone models and knockout JS, which is fine. We like the patterns generally, but it, it gave me a lot of chance to like refine and reflect, which is why is how I created Soul.js was basically trying to do that. And then React, you know, came out and React was like, it basically killed this model dead. Like they, they basically view this as something they fixed. Like I had some fun with the drama on Twitter because like, you can see it in the way they talk about it. They're like, yes, we we fixed this problem. It's like the go-to of programming and stuff. And it's like, I don't mean that to be insulting, but we've evolved past it. It's like, okay, right, sure. I was like, I still like this. I was actually kind of fine. I was like, fine, no one's going to like this. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. Right. And essentially building on that is where like Solid came from. And I, I had a steep hill to climb because it was like, everyone kind of decided that like, so... I worked on benchmarks and performance. I was like, I took every single situation where people had shown that the VDOM was fast and been like, okay, can this be done with a reactive system? As it turns out, it can. A lot of people had kind of given up. They're like, okay, well, you know, this is kind of just a pendulum or like, you know, people kind of go like overcorrect. That was essentially my, my sense of things. So I was like, we can actually work on the problems that we have today instead of like completely replacing it. It's funny. This is the justification I hear whenever I'm like, hey, try SolidJS. They're like, no, no, we can fix React. <laughs> React doesn't actually need fixing, to be fair. Right. It's just a different paradigm on the opposite side of the spectrum. But yeah, it is one of those things where like, I was like, okay, let's work at this. And that's good because it gave me like, while I had the real experience working at a company working on actual projects, delivering to production, having to maintain it, also gave me a chance to look at stuff in a wide, wider lens and kind of make decisions on how things should maybe work and kind of like hypothesize on that. And I did a lot of benchmarking and a lot of verification to try and decide the approach made sense. So it was a combination of me just loving the developer experience of dealing with signals, so to speak, like just the way the control flow works. Mm -hmm. Again, it reminded me of some of the programming I'd done when I was younger and a bit with uh, like just making that performant. So both of those things were very sources of passion for me to let me explore a wider range of solutions, which is kind of interesting now because I realize because of the benchmarks, the thing with benchmarks is, is everybody gets in those benchmarks. So I started being like, oh, Svelte has an update, updated. Oh, the vanilla JS version, like the, the baseline isn't fast. Other libraries are catching up to it. Can we make it faster? I got a lot of experience, again, with toy demos, so to speak, but playing with different scenarios and different frameworks to the point that at one point we started trying to categorize all the frameworks in the benchmark in terms of like what they did or rules of it. Mm. And I was able to like spend an afternoon and go through the, all of them, including the ones that I didn't know. So to the point that I basically categorize or explain how like the 80 different frameworks in the JS framework benchmark worked. So it gave me a really wide view to kind of decide how I'd approach development. And at the beginning here, obviously, that was just aiding my work with Solid, but it ended up giving me an opportunity to help others, which has been really cool because I know I'm just like rambling, but like essentially, no, not at all. We've seen this kind of sense that, you know, there's new stuff and new places we can take front-end dev. Over the last couple of years, we've seen this evolution. People trying to solve different categories of problems especially things that were kind of weaknesses classically of single page apps. And I've realized a lot of the work I did to kind of look at all the different frameworks and try and like take that all in kind of helps in terms of being able to kind of 
find common ground between those and start a conversation with different authors and figure out how we could kind of like collectively push the web forward. So that's been a large part of what I've been doing, especially since, you know, I've had the position at Netlify to be able to work on it full time. Right. Because I was with the builder guys building server-side benchmarks with Quick so that we could see like what the trade-offs for resumability were. These kind of opportunities, working with the Astro guys to kind of start like fly on, like just kind of like spitballing, like what would it look to add client-side routing Mm. in Astro if you wanted that, you know? Right. These are the kind of avenues that we can explore. There's a lot of really cool innovation happening right now. And there's always the cycles where things kind of like, mm-hmm. how should I put it, like consolidate on single solutions. Mm-hmm. We've been on a single solution really for five or six, seven years. People are looking at different solutions right now. I'm not saying that that makes, say, React any less relevant. It just means that there's a sense and a feeling out there that people are looking for maybe alternatives just so they can evaluate it. So like, because React itself is changing. So when someone goes, hey, there's this new thing in React, how do you put any value on it? If like, on one hand, you've been fine saying, you know, I'm happy with what I've been doing. But if you have to, you know, make decisions again, if you have to get to a point where you actually have to evaluate where things are heading, you can't do that without having alternatives. I agree with that. And I agree with like, it's essentially like a question everything mantra. And I think that uh, I really appreciate that you're like in a position to not say, listen, I have this like deeply ingrained, I've determined this solution. And I believe at the end of the day, now, five years from now, 10 years from now, it's what's going to be the end result. And it could be, and it it may not be, but I think that the misnomer is that like, we've answered this question. Why are we going back to ask this question again? And in the context of like the Astro guys, this is like what we really love about that is in the fact that They've said that, yeah, we we got away from server-side render and we got away from just like HTML as a first-class citizen because blah, blah, blah. But a lot of those things aren't true anymore. Like the cloud provides you really powerful machine servers, even on-prem or powerful machines. And yes, even the client provides you some powerful machines, but should we be giving it all of the processing power because we're not as concerned with cost and all of those things. So let's just look at the context of what we're trying to do with the user and say like, maybe if we just server-side render a thing, it's not so bad. Oh, we need to do a little more with that because it's a highly interactive application. Great, but let's not just say create React app or, or even Next.js, you know, hot take is the solution for that because I think Next is great, but I also think that it's highly engineered for its own platform. So then again, like, mm-hmm. is it solve all the problems there? E- yes and no, because again, it's very dependent on React, which was a very like single layer. It did a very single layer very well. So I was part of the team that did a backbone marionette application at National mm-hmm. Geographic. Loved that shit at the time. And then like when I got to do a React component that it's almost like made me feel a little bit like the story with your dad, where you like you were able to real time see those updates without depending on jQuery or whatever weird DOM manipulation thing. Like I was blown away. It was awesome. But then this was also like 2014 or something. So we're not in the same place anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah. And continuing to ask those questions to just say, like, what's the best tool for the job? What at the end of the day is the simplest tool for the job for people later on? Right. The bus syndrome people later on who are responsible for maintaining an application and not having to like fight for a rewrite because things don't make any sense anymore. Right. Like those kinds of things. I think like, that's why I completely agree with you and love that you're just continuing to ask those questions. And then if you come back to the same answer, that's great. Yeah. But you might not sometimes. Yeah. It's tricky. Cause yeah, it's constantly moving, which seems weird. Like the, it's funny. Cause we always get like the back end people being like, Hey, you know, we haven't changed this in years. Why are you guys so volatile? And it's like what we're capable of changes considerably with the advancement of devices. Like our biggest bottleneck is the network and the devices that are on the in the user's hands. And I think that changes perspective a bit. It's also our biggest restriction. And I think it's easy to like dream ahead, like, and then be like, look, in some idealistic future, we can do everything. So we we constantly have this tension between like getting to that future and not quite making it today and like being practical about it. And I mean, that's an engineer's job to kind of discern that kind of information. 
And from that perspective, like it's hard to ever say absolute or sure things because you know that this is a changing, it's changing under you, so to speak. So I sometimes kind of push off the comparison for that reason because it's like you can't compare those things. You got to make what's practical for you. So I can never be too mad at someone, say, for choosing React from a practicality standpoint. But on the other hand, you do have to consider the fact of like, maybe you should consider, like it shouldn't be just the default choice. Like you should consider like what you're trying to accomplish and the difference between today and the future, like is a real thing. And yeah, I mean, there's no way you can look at this without, you know, putting amount of preference in there, like things that you like or patterns that make sense to you. We carry that with us. And then (laughs) I think that's probably the biggest deciding point because truth of the matter is any modern JavaScript framework does decently well within the boundaries of what the like framework's designed for. I think what's interesting now is we're moving beyond those boundaries. Like we've kind of got to a point, and this happened years ago, but like people are like, yeah, I want to use uh, React for my content site or like whatever view or whatever like single page apps thing, you know, and it doesn't always make sense for that, those situations. Like you can use it for a blog site and not be ding because that's like small time. But like generally speaking, these were built for applications almost to compete with mobile in a sense. And Mm -hmm. it's not the same kind of requirement you need for say accessible government site or for say an e-commerce site, which is something I I had a little experience with working at eBay. So it's interesting because over this evolution, this is why I look so wide because you start seeing the same patterns. People talk about React server components. There's a lot of similarities there to the islands framework. It's, for React and it solves stuff in a way that I think is beneficial in, you know, maybe a different segment or even a wider segment in terms of like being able to extend to more app-like applications. But generally speaking, the core mechan- mechanisms for server components, like how you author a structure app are actually very similar to islands like Astro. And if you look at Astro and islands, like you can go further back on there. Um, it came popular, obviously, around 2020 when, you know, Jason Miller made that Islands article and kind of kind of everyone started playing with that. But like Marco, which eBay's framework, had that capability since 2014. And out of order streaming, all the stuff, you know, that we thought was really cool about, you know, kind of coming in modern yeah. was something that they had because they had that problem. So as we're widening the scope, we can look in the domains of this, like people solving for the specific solutions. Like someone's probably solved that problem for you already. And I feel like reactivity was another one of those things where signals and solid kind of came in. It was like, it was designed to solve a certain type of problem, synchronization problem. And while in a sense, react with its declarative views approach, I mean, to be fair, these are all declarative, but with its like re-render model kind of immediate Mm -hmm. mode from a graphics perspective, kind of simplified things to a point where like, maybe you don't have to worry about it. At a certain point, you always have to worry about it, right? Like, and I think one of the interesting things about the web is being so constrained by the device and the network, something out of our control, has to, you know, give us a lot of consideration, which is actually interesting because in a certain way, it isn't unlike game programming. Like you can't change the hardware of the you know, users you have, like over time, you know that they'll get better graphics cards. But like, generally speaking, we are actually still developing for like that specific platform. Um, And over time, we hopefully find ways to conquer the divide between developer experience and user experience in a way that is agreeable. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And it kind of like harks back to the, the browser wars in a way or whatever, where you're developing to the lowest common denominator of your user base, right? You want to look at those metrics and you want to say the majority of these people need to be able to accomplish the primary tasks to make this application or site successful. So, you know, that kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. And yeah, like, so it's like always about the best tool for the job into your, into what like your major business goals are, right? Yeah. Well, I think like React did it the easy way where it's like, let's just update everything, right? And it's like, that works. That's easy for people to learn. It's like, this is just going to always update and it's going to work and whatever. But like being declarative about these are the things that will update with signals is just like a better mental model, I feel like. Like you don't want to have to turn off all the things that aren't going to update. Just tell it the things that should update. Is like, <laughs> So it's like they both perform well if you know what you're doing. But the problem is a lot of people go to boot camps or whatever and don't know what they're doing. So they make really 
things that aren't that performant. Mm. Yeah, the interesting thing here is that when talking about the ideal versus the practical, and this is why Solid kind of sat as something I was just playing with and I didn't open source or didn't care for the longest time. Although I moved to open sourcing before hooks came, but what, the thing is, I have no argument against if you watch like React talks from 2015 or you know 2014 when they're introducing it. Like, there's a reason why a lot of again, I'm going to use game programming as, as an example. Use almost all game engines work in immediate mode, like that, like idea that you just like blow away the view and just create it again, even though retain mode, which is like the DOM where you can actually keep a model and mutate it in memory is way more performant. It's just easier to deal with all that synchronization. Mm. Over time, we optimize and under the hood, we actually want a retained mode. But like generally speaking, there's something very simple about just blowing it away. Despite all of that, what ended up happening with React is we got hooks. And hooks look a lot like reactive systems. Like it's funny because I get a lot of flack with Solid for like the JSX thing. Where like, you know, people like, oh, you're just like React because of that. Like, I don't mean Flack. It's more like like confusion where they're like, oh, it's all like a better React. Did you try and prove upon React? And it wasn't true. I was doing this before like React hooks and all that. JSX was just convenient because of the composability. It had all the tooling. I was like, yeah, that's a good choice. But like, in a sense, reactivity had hooks before hooks. So like, if you pick up a 2010 knockout thing, it has like state and derived state and effects. Like it has those things. They didn't call them the same, but they have those things. And Solid is very similar to that. So in a sense, as soon as React got to a point where you needed to like start thinking about how things updated because you have hooks and dependency rays and got to a point where like, it's funny because like there are functional programming, like classical functional programming things that like map to that. Mm -hmm. But in JavaScript, we had these reactive systems. And I think when Hook showed up, a bunch of people were like, oh, this like clicked for them. Like, oh, this reminds me of that like old knockout app or whatever that I was doing before. <laughs> and it's not quite the, the right connection, but it's the same reason why Svelte 3 happened because of React hooks to a degree. View composition API happened because of React hooks. Technically, views had this reactivity also from 2013 or 14, whenever it came out. But they finally unleashed it because like, there's like this perspective in the ecosystem. This is this is a big thing about being like the big player is like you can kind of like push the narrative just by like Marco can go build server components and out of order streaming. No one cares about it until React 18 comes up. <laughs> you know, like I think it's interesting because React itself even though there's a way I could justify it from a pure functional programming standpoint, being like still true to the original vision, it's actually compromised a bit because like an example of this is suddenly references, uh, stable references matter. That's why use callback exists. Like if you take a value and put in the dependency rate, it has to be equivalent for it not to rerun again. So like structural cloning is a thing. Early days of React, you didn't care about any of that stuff. You literally just blew it up and continued. I think React today is actually more performant because people have you know, adopted this abstraction. But generally speaking, we didn't realize like how awkward some of our React apps were in the past. Hooks actually made it kind of like shun a light on that. And in a sense, given us the tools to actually improve upon that. But it's also at the same time kind of goes like, okay, if you're going to do this and you're going to care about this, like maybe a reactive system that's actually built for this specifically, like, you know, the signal stuff actually makes sense. So it's it's kind of interesting. I found myself very much in that place back in 2018 where React announced hooks. And I was just like, honestly, up to that point, I was just like, you know, it's fine. The, the world's moved on. When they did that, I just was in because I was just like, wait a second. Yeah. At first, you know, like I, I, some other people were working on similar libraries were like, oh, well, React's added this. I guess my job is done. You know, this is all I wanted. I wanted those comp composable primitives. And I was like, no, 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 no. Hmm. Like this pattern or this abstraction might be actually more agreeable, so to speak. Like you don't, because you don't have the same kind of hook rules. There are rules, but they're not the same hook rules. You don't have this kind of like, you're not fighting against like the re-render model. Like, and I understand this is so weird. We've, some people in the solid community started terming stuff React Brain, and I don't want to come off too harsh on it. Cause like, I, I get it from like a purely functional standpoint, but Essentially, it does take a little mental warping to consider that you have a function that reruns over and over again and that somehow mm. persists state in the middle of it. Yeah. That is a jump. Like yeah. the fact that you can have, if you look at the dependencies almost as conditionals, that's why you don't have like nested ifs 
with hooks and stuff, you have that order. The dependency arrays serve as that conditional. Then you have things that are kind of existing on a different branch that you don't run when you re-render. Like you kind of like, mm. you took the if statement on one run, on, on the other run, you just don't take that if statement. And that kind of like warping your head around that model is doable, but it is definitely a departure from like the old Pete Hunt gets on the stage or Jordan Walk and they're just like, re-render everything, don't care. Like you do care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is fine to talk bad about React on here, just so you know. I do that a lot. So. Well, it's not. I, I think that if you came into the game early days and then you are in the game in hooks days, it is just a massive departure and disconnect in your mental model and how you would create performant applications. And I think that that's just basically the problem that I've had. And only more recently, really, like in over the last couple of years, it sort of was like kind of okay for a while and was doing a lot of replatforming projects within Next.js. And there were things I loved there. And then like things that wasn't their fault that came along with newer versions of React where I was like, man, I really knew how to make this good. And now I've got to think about it in this other way and not care about certain things. And it's kind of annoying to me. So like at the end of the day, Next is like the the super framework for, for React. And I appreciate how it gave it some guardrails there, but, but ultimately I'm not sure that it's like my go-to choice for doing SaaS applications, for example, right? Like, I think that we're rethinking some of those things. So Ryan, aside from like the comparisons, it just seems like frequently in discussions and comparisons from signals and hooks and everything else like there are you mentioned this in like knockout and other places where like this pattern has existed and uh, so you know unidirectional flow of data to me kind of made me think a little bit about how for a while at least ember js was really talking about this whole data down actions up two-way data binding bad stupid components good and I think that like there's a tie to signals with with that kind of ideology as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, React really popularized that directionality. But I would say like I, I was a Ember developer as well for a while there. It was my first attempt at like doing like a proper framework, you know, that had all the pieces. And yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of realized around the same time, 2012, 2013 period, that it was a little bit chaotic. Ember does have a reactive system, like its computed properties and stuff are very similar to the earlier signal stuff in JavaScript. So I, I can see that, that kind of tie in. I I think it's interesting because like for a large part, we kind of just were like, this is a problem. And then we were like, let's just throw away everything and start over again when React kind of came in. And as it turns out, I think there's other solutions to this problem. And that's kind of why I'm, you know, where I am at with signals and where I solid's where it's at, just because there are different ways to approach it. And solid, as I said, still abides that kind of unidirectional flow, read write segregation. It's important, I think. It gives it lets you reason about how data flows through your applications. And that can be true with signals or otherwise. Yeah, completely agree. How about we move into a little whatnot-y kind of things? Unless uh, you had anything specific there, Robbie, you wanted to throw in other than your head nods? No, my brain is not really working at this moment. But uh, <laughs> cool. I mean, just to kind of tie it into Ember, it is like the newer stuff has tracked properties. So it's kind of like using a signal to mark a thing that is going to change. So there is some similarity there. But yeah, I think for those coming from Ember, if you were looking to learn something newer that's a little bit different syntax, I think using signals and solid makes a lot more sense with your mental model than like all the hooks in React. Yeah, it is an interesting one because personally, this always made sense to me because that's where I started from. But I had a great conversation with Dan Abramoff in the comments of one of my articles recently where it didn't occur to him that people would look at hooks and see signals, which... It's interesting because like, I guess there's some functional programming academia kind of area where like these kind of like semi, I don't want to call it, it feels like it's impure because if you have a pure function, you should be able to retain state each time. But it's also like they have like mechanisms and names for this that have nothing to do with reactivity. But when you look on the reactive side, there's a whole history of these kind of composable patterns. 
So I think it's interesting to see how this develops over time because my suspicion is that we we're, what we're just seeing is a common language, like these pieces of like state, derived state and effect, or I guess derived state, some people call memo, mm. is basically common throughout all the JavaScript frameworks now. Now that you have uh, Angular picking up signals and even self-compiled language, React hooks, like they all look kind of the same, but behave a little bit differently. It's going to be interesting to see how much of this is actually just like implementation details. The fact that we're all trying to like fight around the fact that JavaScript is not like a control to our data flow language mm. and that we're like trying to justify that in some sort of way or figure out like how we can manipulate it to our needs. But I think in general, we are seeing that there is a certain language to UI and with further work into the future with compilers and whatnot, we're going to see new ways to make that language, I guess, more accessible is the best word. Yeah. It's almost like we're all starting to agree. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Let's not go that far. <laughs> let's not go that far. <laughs> so let's talk about punk bands. Yeah. Tell us some more about, uh, well, <laughs> about being in that. Oh, you had something else to say? Yeah. I want to say it in a very specific way is that the internet has a burning question as to what came first. Solid JS or Mr. Solid? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Solid way outdates it. I started that band back in, I want to say 96, 97, I guess really was when we like cemented on the name. We didn't have a name, but yeah, I played in that band for a decade in various forms. It, it did change its name, we dropped the Mr. at some point to just Solid. Hmm. But yeah, I, and we went from like being like, kind of like oi punk like rancid style to like by the end we were playing like like youth crew new york hardcore mm. um so like okay we did change the name at that point to break the chains but essentially there was a long we evolved a lot over that time period but it, it was like me and the drummer stayed together that the whole time and the bass player actually for most of it mm. too oh that's pretty so i almost said that's pretty solid but it felt too punny <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's no shortage of that. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it was, I was like, I wanted to play music. I knew that for quite a, a while. Like, I, and it just, like, we just did it. We were like really young. We were like 12 years old or whatever. And we just like started a band and then like go to the local all ages shows and do that whole thing. And we kept at it for quite a while. I, it actually is funny how much like guided like decision making, like my, my first vehicle that I bought was like a, a public transit vehicle, like an ex-public hmm. transit vehicle. It was basically like a minibus. Okay. And that's what we used for touring and stuff. So it was a big part of my life for a very long time. We practiced tons, especially when we were younger, like, you know, four days a week. But like the weekend practice would be like all day. So Nice. Wow. That's commitment. Yeah. Are you still playing now, Annie? Not really. I managed to find like a different band to jam with right before uh, I moved and COVID hit. Mm. So it was just, but yeah, no, since I've been in uh, San Jose, I haven't played that much. I, I I still got my Mesa Boogie, you know, sitting in the garage, half stack. Nice. Dual rectifier. And dual rectifier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to say, I don't know what that is, but Robbie knows your, your vernacular there. Yeah. I'm like, uh, what? I used to have a dual rectifier and uh, sold it and then... I don't know. I just started getting rid of my nice equipment because I was like getting less and less into being in the band. So, yeah, I, I still have a bunch of guitars and like a bass and acoustic guitar and stuff like it's all sitting around. I don't know. I, I need to clean it up at some point. But yeah. And just bring back the saxophone. I think that's the key. Right. Too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It right. comes around full circle. I did manage to like back when we were like doing like the more oi punk kind of thing. We had some ska music and stuff. I did actually manage to do a saxophone piece. Oh. It was, I guess, like our first CD. We did some like mixtapes and stuff before, but our first album had saxophone on it. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. You know, with those like ska songs. But yeah. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. like the Aquabats or something like that. I don't know. That's yeah. what I always kind of think of when I think ska. Yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely a time period. There was like a year, two years where it's just like everything. It was almost like the reggae of punk, you know, like which. OK, so my reference there is that like reggae songs basically sound the same. It's almost like um, like samba music or something or. Yeah, there's certain genres that it's like there's an element of it that's exactly the same throughout. The thing that's interesting, I mean, going there is like I have no clue how 
punk crossed with it, probably 80s, like uh, the Madness or the Clash or whatever, yeah. got the punk crossover. But like ska music actually predates reggae. It was in, popular in Jamaica in the 1960s. And there is like a different rhythmic thing that you can tell the difference between the two, although they're very similar. They both involve that kind of like, you know, eh, 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 you know, but yeah. like one's on the downbeat. And one's on the upbeat. <laughs> so it like, it changes the feel of it. But yeah, somehow early 80s, I want to say punk rock bands just like started incorporating that into their music. And yeah, it came back again in around like 97, right? Like as a, you know. Both times that were like, so like the popularization of punk in like the early 80s or so, because I was in like skate culture in the 80s. And then, yeah, that resurgence in like the early to mid 90s. And then I think it just kind of carried over with all facets of that. Not that I know that much about music, but. <laughs> music was a thing that I was very interested in for a while. There was a time period where I like really studied it, like to understand the history and where things were coming from. I actually spent a couple of years working in a record store um, mm. doing that kind of thing. But yeah, those are those are the days. <laughs> was it called Top 5 Records? No, no. I don't know if you ever saw that high fidelity and they're like super record nerds in there. Yeah. That's what it makes me think of when you're like in there and having these internal employee debates about top five ska records or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so funny when you're involved in music like that, like what matters and like these conversations are very important conversations and having the right opinions are very important as well. So I got a little leeway um, being in a band and playing in a band. Surely you, you have a, there's like a certain amount of knowledge that has to go there, but you sometimes get a little bit more slack, maybe, perhaps. Yeah, as a maker versus just a, as they say, like, those who can't do teach, that kind of thing. Those who can't play, sell records. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Any other hobbies? Sounds like you really deep dive in a couple of things. I don't know how much other time you have, but. Yeah, I mean, when I got out of music, I got way more into, I mean, this is such a generic one, but into hiking. I, that was actually one of the things I was most worried about when I moved to San Jose, because back in British Columbia in Canada, we just like, it was really easy. There's like just tons of mountains. We just kind of just go pick one, kind of go up towards Whistler or anywhere along there, Pemberton, and tons and tons of hiking because of the coastal mountains right there. There's some okay hiking around San Jose, but it's not quite this the same feel. So, but we do it and uh, still with the family and everything. But we used to do like, you know, a lot, not like going to Kilimanjaro kind of deal, but we used to do like a little bit more ambitious hikes than we do these days. Interesting. Yeah, we have got a lot of hiking here in, in Phoenix, but obviously uh, it's kind of the reverse timeline, essentially. Like you love to do it in the winter, avoid it in the summer. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's what I've noticed since moving south. It's kind of like that. The winter here is so much nicer for that. Like just like even right now, it's like perfect. It's all green and it's like it's really nice. Whereas, I mean, we hiked in the winter um, back in Vancouver, but it's like snow hiking. Mm -hmm. Like it's a whole other thing, yeah. you know, and you got to be careful when you do that. But it's cool. You can you can chart basically like straight over the mountain. Like usually when you're like you'll go to the stuff in the summer and you'll kind of like wind around and, you know, go up the trails in the winter. You can kind of just like power straight through. You could just like be like mm. straight up the mountain sometimes, you know. But <laughs> I mean, there's some safety concerns there. <laughs> Yeah, you learn how to uh, survive an avalanche, potentially. <laughs> yeah, or, or, you know, get good toe holds when you're, like, scaling, like, something. Like, hopefully it's not too icy. Like, it hasn't frozen over, you know? Anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, you need some ice picks. Do, like, the ice climber style. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also, don't never go near the edge or thing. There's, that's a story we always had. Every year, there's something that happened where someone got too close to the edge and, like, the whole side just came down. The, you'd always hear stories. So yeah, just be safe out there. It's not a pleasant way to go. I don't think. <laughs> no. Yeah. There's a lot of that though. Like people, not even just in snow, but like, you know, people go to the Grand Canyon or whatever and want to get a nice selfie and just fall over the edge. <laughs> like just take that from a little bit further. <laughs> yeah. There's a wind gust or something and they're like, um, yeah. use some angles and they're like, zoom in some yeah. so you seem closer. Yeah. 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 I'm going to be far enough away that if I fall all the way straight down, all of my body is still on land. That's my rule. Like I used to do that at the Metro, like in DC waiting for the Metro to come. If they're like, if someone pushes me over, I don't want to be able to touch the Metro at all. Mm. So like be really far back. 
<laughs> That's probably a good, good rule. Yeah, no. Snow adds a whole other dimension of it, though, because like you can't tell it'll overhang. So it goes further than the actual edge of the ground. So if like, right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It makes it hard. No, I think that's solid. I th- oh my gosh. Solid. Uh, I, th- <laughs> I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. No, I think I've just ingrained it in my brain self uh, subconsciously, you know, all things are solid. Yeah. I don't know. Other than that, I mean, those are big things for me these days. I mean, I spend a lot of time working on open source. Yeah. More hours than the work week. Definitely. So, right. That's why I like hiking. I actually like leave the phone, just like turn it off. I am gone during that time period. So yeah, I th- that's where I was actually the, this morning. I, on Thursday, I, I do take a little break and I, and I go hiking uh, with my wife and yeah, like, I think that's excellent for advocating for mental breaks, forced mental breaks against all screens and get a little nature, fresh fresh air and uh it's surprising how much that can refresh your brain and give you new ideas if you just don't stare and think about something constantly most definitely yeah i've found that over and over again because i mean because most of the work is for me at least it's the thinking um like making sure that it's funny how much time i spend like brainstorming or jotting notes versus actually like writing code these days other than like it's funny you work on open source i don't know people envision it you know just sitting there writing code but like when projects get more popular you you find you're doing more administration anyways so it's it's it was right. it starts becoming less different than work it becomes like oh you know like almost like being a team lead or team manager or whatever like it's, just, it's the same kind of thing so between that and making sure your brainstorm time the actual coding time is like that point where you're just like okay i've been thinking about this long enough i think i'm ready to go yeah i think uh I've been realizing more and more that I probably have ADHD or something and like can't focus on stuff for that long. So I like short little bursts of tasks. So if I'm going to contribute to open source, I want to be able to like open it and like work on it for an hour or two and like back away. Like that's my perfect kind of setup there. I think for me, I needed to figure out a way to break stuff apart because otherwise I get stuck on like a task for very, very long. Like sometimes you, the task is actually giant. Like when you're like, oh, how do I add some huge feature? Like, um, I don't know, when we first added universal rendering, that's like the ability to like to support like solid native or 3JS or whatever, like, like a whole different renderer. Like, how do you just like sit down and just design that out and do it all that time? I, I needed to like, it'd be very tempting to just like stay on my computer and just like not sleep and just like power through it over and over again. So I needed to get used to being like, okay, I'm going to attack this in boxes and in steps because like it's different when you don't have the boundaries i think a lot of people when covid came around had to learn this like for the first time because like you know there's the old like leave the office kind of thing right and then they're working at home and then they're understanding this um this is something like very true especially when it's your like passion project like you really do have to find like a point where you're like okay i'm gonna accomplish this much today and be okay with that like yeah yeah it's a lot of self-discipline essentially around that right like ride the wave for a bit, but also like force yourself to chunk it up. And then, yeah, instead of like sitting there for 18 hours and waking up and realizing it's uh, Friday night. <laughs> I mean, I know there's developers that do that. I, I've been that developer in the past, but it's just not me anymore. I always got that impression from like Jared from Bun, mm. like maybe not so much now because he's running a company, but like the year or so before Bun went like open, like went public, like I definitely got the impression whenever I talked to him that he'd like, you know, he'd just gone at it. Sometimes when you have that period in your life, when you can do that, you can accomplish incredible things in a short period of time. Yeah, I don't think it generally is sustainable. You got to like no. find new patterns. And for me now, as I said, working on SolidJS, it's been like seven years. So like finding a balance is really important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to realize that everything in the virtual world can be infinite. Like you can always find new stuff to do. So I try to get stuff in the real world done first. Like, oh, the dishes need to be done. Let's do that. And then like, mm. then I can spend all of the rest of my time because oh. you could go down a rabbit hole and never leave your computer. That's true. That's why I make my bed every morning, actually. I make the bed every morning because I know it's like one check mark I can give myself. Like I will get this done today for sure. Yeah. And if you don't, it's a bad day. Right. And it's a real bad day. Yeah. That just means I'm not getting out of it usually. Yeah. <laughs> 
not that it happens so frequently anymore, but yeah, I definitely understand that like your, your body, your soul basically only has so many of those, like just go at it for as long as possible. Yeah. It's the spoons. Yeah. It makes me think of like, you know, when I was younger or like early teenage playing video games for like hours and hours on it playing this, there's this one called Chrono Trigger. And I remember I had that, that very same moment of like, I was playing this game, playing this game all through the night and whatever else, maybe fell asleep here and there for like an hour or so. And then like someone asking me like, Hey, are you going to go out and do anything tonight or whatever else? And I'm like, uh, what, what day is it? Oh, it's Friday night. Like <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, Chrono Trigger is the best JRPG of all time. So I can under, I can appreciate that. That I had to get it. <laughs> okay. Saying that is pretty spicy, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, that game was incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's actually one thing I'm a little bit sad on, like in terms of like all the different hobbies, I used to play a lot of uh, JRPGs and RPG games and I like never have time. It's like, I find this little window. I managed to start up better for social side playing D and D online mm-hmm. with a group of people. So we stream, we try to stream every Tuesday to play D and D on Twitch. That's like where I get a bit of that, you know, kind of back in, but yeah, I'm a big RPG fan, which is fun because, you know, those games take forever. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's an exercise in, in small time increments and like going back to it. I started the Witcher three a while ago. I'm still playing it. I've waited so long, you know, that they've actually gone to a point where like they've released like the high res re-release version by this point. So (laughs) (laughs) nice. Yeah. But, you know, did you uh, get sidetracked playing Gwent? Because that's what happened to me. I stopped wanting to play the real game because this card game is so fun. (laughs) Oh, right. You mentioned this before. Yes. I still haven't gone in there. I haven't so much, which you'd think I would because I was a big Magic the Gathering player uh, when I was younger. I was really into it competitively. That's where I got into writing, actually. I, I was writing strategy stuff on MTG Salvation forums and stuff and like answering questions and stuff and designing decks. And you'd think I could get into Gwent. But the funny thing is I, I also played Final Fantasy VIII, which also had a card game. And like I recognized like pretty early on, I was like, man, if, if I get into the game, then I won't finish the actual game. So I have, yeah. I played Gwent like in the beginning, like when they first like force you to learn the game. I have not challenged anyone or like I failed all the quests there because I'm just like, no, if I go there, I will never actually finish the game. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> womp womp. Yeah, that's why you will never finish that game. Yeah, I just fall off of games. I tend to not finish them because like if I get 60% of it done and I've enjoyed it, then I'm fine. I don't need to mm. check all those boxes. Yeah, I, I need to finish it. I just the, this <laughs> necessity. The challenge is like I've given up 100% when I was younger. I was like, oh, no, I need to like get all the secrets. But like I'm okay now like missing stuff. You know, it's my playthrough. I don't have to like follow the guidebook, so to speak. But yeah, I won't move on to the like the next game. I'll have like two games maybe going on at a time and I kind of justify it by having them under different categories. Mm. Like retro game, modern game. Like, okay, I can have two games. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I won't like pick up a new game of the same category until I finish the previous one. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair. I think the last one I, well, yeah, the last one I would have finished like that was Skyrim. I had to finish it, but I also didn't finish some of the quests because I wanted to keep my group as big as possible. So I wanted like thieves and vampires with me so I could just crush people. And I want to finish like those particular. So they won't leave your party. Yeah, they don't <laughs> leave my party at that point. If I don't finish their story, but I still take my story and like kill the big guy and win the whole thing. Like I feel good about that. That's fair. Yeah, that works. But yeah, I mean, the problem is you, there was a time where I was able to like keep up and I remember being like, oh no, when's the next game going to come out? Mm-hmm. These days it's not like that. These days it's like, I have a long, long list. Like, yeah, I th- I'm trying to think the newest game I probably played to the end and beaten was Breath of the Wilds and we're already mm-hmm. getting to Breath of the Wilds 2 this year. So like, yeah, right. Yes. I'm excited for that. I will dive into that as well. It's basically the only reason why I kept a Switch during the pandemic, which I hear is still happening, but I was going to sell one because it was like, these things are selling for like crazy money. All I do is play FIFA on it periodically. I'm going to sell this. Oh, wait, I heard about Breath of the Wild 2. Done. Never mind. Keeping this thing. <laughs> yep. It's going to be a good year on that side. Um, there's a bunch of titles. I got back into Mario Kart because uh, playing with the kids, they get to play Mario Kart and they've been releasing these expansions on Mario Kart Mm. 8. So there's like every three months, there's like two new like 
sets of four courses. And they did that all through last year and they're doing it all through this year. So some retro courses being brought back from older games, plus like some new courses. So there's another, I want to say what, six times four, 24 levels coming out from Mario Kart this year. So. Oh, okay. Mm. I'm going to look into that. My son is six and a half and we played some, but he doesn't play it very seriously. So we haven't really come back to it very much, but it sounds like maybe an opportunity to revisit. Yeah. So good stuff. Breath of the Wild 2, Super Mario Maker 3, though I didn't play Super Mario Maker 2, so I I don't know what the deal is. But yeah, I don't know. (laughs) A lot of Nintendo stuff. Sounds like work. I want the levels to exist for me already. I don't need to make them. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually probably more excited about the streaming side. That's when my kids are very young. I got into that's how I got into Twitch. I was watching live streamers play video games. So Hmm. Mario was a big one, too. A lot of primary colors and stuff. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty excited to see if uh, some of the old speedrunners come back for that kind of thing. So, yeah, for sure. Anyway. All right. We're at time here. Is there anything we missed or stuff you want to plug before we end? No, I mean, we talked about like a lot of different things, (laughs) honestly. I mean, people obviously check out SolidJS, SolidJS.com, join the Discord, look on GitHub, all that stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I think... We're doing a lot of really cool things and starting to see the impact of that across the ecosystem. So, yeah, I'm pretty stoked if people come and check it out. Cool. And find Mr. Solid on Bandcamp. <laughs> yeah, we managed to put up a bunch of our old recordings. So, yeah, there's like five albums worth of stuff up there. So, yeah, check it out. Why not? Nice. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe, leave us some ratings and reviews, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io. 